frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I drink your milkshake. What we've got here is failure to Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cinefleck. I am your host, Ethan Colburn. Uh, thank you guys for coming back. Another week, another week, another episode. This is our ninth episode. I can't believe we made it this far, and uh, I all of a sudden have a massive, massive backlog. So, so long as it won't be too overwhelming, I think I'm going to start putting out two a week for the time being. Uh, hope you guys are all well. Hope everyone's staying safe with the smoke. It's like not safe to be inside and it's not safe to be outside uh, because of this horrible air quality. So if anyone has like a cryogenic freezer I can just crawl into for six months, I think that would be ideal. Um, This week on the show, I'm super excited. I got Brian Bittner from the Lessons from the Screenplay YouTube channel and the Beyond the Screenplay podcast. Um, I had a great, great conversation with him about high and low. Um, he came up with a whiskey infusion, a grapefruit, pepper, corn, whiskey infusion. Uh, it was definitely my most cumbersome drink to date, but entirely worth it. It was just, it was fantastic. Um, I have that recipe up on my social media with all my other recipes, uh, at Cinefleck pod on Instagram and at Cinefleck on Twitter. And you can also find Brian on Twitter at Brian Bittner. Uh, so follow him, check his, his stuff out. Um, next week on the show. Well, first this week, actually, I have Sam Meltzer on for a bonus episode on black Swan. I'm doing as I, we kind of had a mini conversation. He's uh, he's under 21, so we didn't do a drink. <laughs> not gonna not gonna supply alcohol to minors. Um, but uh, we had a great conversation on that, so that'll be going up Thursday. And then next week, um, I have Kevin Goatee on uh, from the Gutting the Sacred Cow podcast to talk about higher learning. And in honor of our 10th episode, we're gonna do a little uh, Q and A after. So if you want to stick around for that. Um, we'll do a Q and a, I'd love to get, uh, questions from you guys. If you want to submit, uh, on Twitter or Instagram questions for either me or page to answer, we'll record a little Q and a, and we'll put that up after the show. So we also have some t-shirts left. I'm nearly sold out of all the reds except for the extra larges, but we have grays left. Uh, you can find pictures pictures of those on my Instagram. So if you want, if you're still interested in getting a T-shirt, please let me know. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for supporting and everything else. Without further ado, let's get to this week's episode. Brian, thank you so much, man, for coming on the show. It's so good to it's so good to finally chat. We've been we've been emailing for a while, and it's good mm-hmm. to it's good to get you on, man. Uh, you wanted to do a whiskey infusion for this. Uh, um, if, if you could get into a little bit of like how you started to do that, and then also just uh, um, what sort of inspired you to do this one in particular, that would be awesome. Sure. Yeah, it, it all started when a friend of mine. It was when the um, Ravens played the 49ers in the Super Bowl, I, and I that. <laughs> yeah, and we went to a friend's house, and he showed, and and the, my friend Jamie showed up with two infused whiskeys one was called nevermore and one was called gold rush 
So for the Ravens. Oh, fun. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Gold Rush was like honey and vanilla bean and brown sugar infused whiskey. And then uh, Nevermore was like, I think, blackberries and stuff, you know, like the sort yeah. of like dark, dark fruit. Um, and I was like, I love this. This is genius. I want to do this forever. So he <laughs> sent me the like recipe that he had found on the Internet. Uh, or sort of he had found recipes on the internet and then he kind of played around with it and uh, usually use Evan Williams bourbon, which is very cheap and very, I, th- I think it's really good, but it also, mm. because it's, it's not terribly strong flavored, it'll take the flavor of whatever you put in it. Um, Got it. And uh, so then we just, I started playing with it and making little things, but I'm a total nerd. So we started experimenting with like, let's make things for certain reasons. Game of Thrones was on at the time. So then I made a um, a House Stark whiskey called Two-Legged Wolf that was like, it was a lot of like wintry things. Like I think it was like rosemary and chocolate and like something else. I forget what it was. It was like my first one. It wasn't great, but it was a nice little experiment. Um, And then I made one for House Lannister called Debt Keeper that was like brown sugar and honey uh, like very oh, like blonde, great. blonde and rich kind of things. Yeah. And then for the, um, the Martells, I made a, one called, I think sand snake and it was like habanero pepper and jalapeno. It was way too spicy, <laughs> but it was really cool. Pretty hot, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I did, I think I, I did a rum for, um, for, uh, uh, Pike. What's that? Gray joy house. Gray joy. Great so joy, it was yeah. just, yeah. That's and it was fun. just, it was just so fun to like come up with the ingredients, like what ingredients actually, um, are going to taste good first of all obviously but that are going to fit thematically with what we're doing and then coming up with a name for it and stuff so then I've done a bunch uh, since then I mean I do the same thing with cocktails but the whiskey infusion is fun because it's like a little like process of like cooking you know yeah um, for sure so for it sure. just became really fun to do that and then you and I started talking and uh, and you said high and low and I was like ooh high and low what would I do for that and I was like well let's start with a Japanese whiskey so we got Suntory Toki because we yeah. don't want to spend a thousand dollars on some nice you know Japanese whiskey it can, it can um, get expensive right and then I was like high and low you have these two this class struggle you know the it, first of all it's a black and white movie but also you have like the the upper class and the lower class and then you have this pink smoke that sort of like drives the final the final act of the movie yeah the so single i thought color. right yeah the single color in a black and white movie um so i i messaged my friend and i said hey i was thinking about infusing a japanese whiskey i don't know what you would think and he's like oh i'm looking up the flavor notes and and like maybe pepper and grapefruit and i was like oh my god i was thinking pepper because my girlfriend was like oh there's white pepper so i was like oh black pepper white pepper you right. know that there there's your high and your low um and then he said grapefruit and i was like oh my god there's the pink so done <laughs> yeah i do really like like whiskey sours and stuff and, mm-hmm. and, and 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 so it does remind me it, it does remind me a little bit of that with the um the sort of citrus kick at the beginning and then the right. sort of and, and then the sort of um and then we did add a little sugar to this as well because you cook the you, you like cook the pepper in sort of a simple syrup right right exactly yeah so the so the process uh, i'll give the simple version of the process and then and then your listeners can you know, show notes or you can hit one of us up on social media or whatever for a more yeah um, absolutely detailed thing but the process is basically you want to make a simple syrup um so you want to take sugar or brown sugar and water depending on what the other ingredients are whether sugar or brown sugar is going to make more sense and that's going to be your sort of glue that holds everything together um so it's like sugar and water in a saucepan and 
Um, and then any ingredients that are sort of going to be more mixing early. So that'll be like honey or if you're mm-hmm. kind of stewing vegetables, in this case, pepper. Um, and you boil that and let it simmer. And then when you, after about half an hour of simmering, you take it off of heat and then you want to add your stronger ingredients like an orange peel or a cinnamon stick or like something like that. In this case, grapefruit peel. Um, and then, uh, so, so then you, your simple syrup is sort of like where you're mixing everything into one liquid. And then afterwards is sort of, what are you going to be steeping this with for two days, three days, four days, however long you want to steep it. Um, and you kind of stir that in once it gets to room temperature, then you add the whiskey, put it in a mason jar, let it sit for however long you want. And then, and then you just have to filter it, which can be a process because you have to get it through. You have to get all the like sediment out and everything. Right. Um, and then, and then that's it. So it's really just a question of playing around with different, uh, different ingredients and different ideas and seeing, seeing what comes out of it. And the nice thing is it's really hard to like really screw this up because if you add, my problem is I always add too much of something. Like when I did my first round of this high and low whiskey, I just did too much pepper and I just had to add more Centauri to, uh, to balance it out. But you just, you just add more and it thins it out, you know? And if you don't, if you don't have enough, right. And if you don't have enough of something, then fine, you just have regular whiskey. So it's hard (laughs) to like really make something undrinkable. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and yeah, it's just, a, it's just a really fun process and it's fun to, it's fun to do. It's fun to like do with friends or a partner or whatever, but also just to come up with like silly little ideas that are like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to watch this movie tomorrow. Let's make, you know, this infusion or whatever. Kai, man, it was a really good suggestion. It's one of the most like creative, um, drink ideas I've had on the show so far. So, I mean, it's been, it's been really fun and thanks for, um, and thanks for suggesting it and everything. Um, do you want to head into the movie a bit? So, like, why did you um, pick this movie other than, like, the whiskey infusion and all that? Mm-hmm. Like, what what was sort of your thinking with, with talking about high and low? Um, well, you had mentioned it in one of, yeah. like, sort of going back and forth. And when I saw that, I thought, ah, click. Uh, just because I, I love this movie. I actually had a really interesting... 2019 with kurosawa um i had seen one or two kurosawa movies before um but i'd always wanted to check out more of his stuff and there's a theater here in la called the vista and a a group called secret movie club and they do these screenings of usually classic movies and they'll do cool things like the inspiration and, and the inspired so they showed uh, Buster Keaton's The General and then Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, they showed Sunset Boulevard oh, and then sure. Mulholland Drive, things like that where it's yeah. like very clear. Um, and so I've, I'd gone to a couple of their screenings and I just really like the guy who runs it. His name's Craig Hamill. Uh, he's just really total movie nerd and just a joy to talk to. And they were doing 12 months of Kurosawa in 2019. And... Uh, I said uh, they were doing Rashomon first. And I was like, oh, Rashomon's one of those movies I've always heard about, but I never watched it. And I just always hear like, this is one of these movies you got to see. So my girlfriend and I went, and this was in January of 2019. And we saw Rashomon and we loved it. Um, and, and she's like a visual artist and I'm a writer. So it's like Kurosawa is just this great blend of these things where oh, it's completely. like the store. Yeah. You know, so, so I'll be like, Oh, that shot composition. And she's like, I know I'm, I'm of course I was thinking about that. And she's like, but that one character. And I was like, of course I was thinking about that. Like, yeah. it, you know, we can talk about each other's loves and stuff. Um, but, uh, but then I think it was in February they were showing Ikiru, which ended up becoming like one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, that, that, that's my third favorite movie of all time. Oh, yeah? I did a listing recently, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's 
that's a just just a gorgeous gorgeous nice movie. well I one mean, of the first two yeah um harold and Maude. nice and then uh gosh what did i put second um moonrise kingdom was the second one okay wow moonrise kingdom nice very cool um yeah, Harold Mod's a nice, nice, nice number one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Ikiru just blew me away. I was like, how, how did somebody make this movie 50 years ago? And like, oh, yeah. movies aren't just better now by definition, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for um, sure. And uh, so then by that point, we were hooked because we'd seen one of the period pieces and one of the modern pieces. And we so they showed, I think, 13 Kurosawa movies over the year. I went to 10. And my girlfriend went to eight, just out of town for one and sick for another. She was sick for high and low, unfortunately. So yeah. we got to watch it together just now. And she hadn't seen it before. So it was great to be able to show it to her finally. Um, but yeah, it just became this thing for us where for the entire year, about once a month, we were like getting up at nine in the morning and going to this theater. They, oh, showed, they showed Seven Samurai, but they had to be out of the theater by like 1 p.m. because it was a fully functioning theater that had matinee showings. Got it. So they had to have start seven samurai at nine in the morning, I think to get us all out of there. But they had a sake tasting in the middle, like during intermission. <laughs> and it's just like, this is the coolest thing. And it was sold out. So, so the guy was like, oh, that's so I, fun. I'm not worried about cinema when at nine in the morning, like a full theater is here to see seven samurai yeah, like for a sure. three and a half hour movie um so yeah we just had we just had a really lovely time watching all of um you know most of kurosawa's biggest movies ever and just getting to experience them in a theater with an audience who's so focused and so responsive um yeah definitely and uh, and i'd been wanting to rewatch high and low because like i said my girlfriend hadn't seen it so when you mentioned that as one of the options i was like okay i definitely would love to talk about high and low and then also we were talking about like, should we do a cocktail, a whiskey infusion? Like we could do something fun. And then I started thinking about the ideas for the infusion and then Japanese I was like, whiskey. there it is. Yeah. 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 That definitely got the ball rolling. Um, yeah. I, I, I sort of had a similar experience with Kurosawa. I worked at, um, I worked at sort of an in, I, I, I worked at a nonprofit theater for a few summers here. Um, sort of in, in, in between college and stuff called the Stanford theater. It's in mm -hmm. Palo Alto. Um, and it's owned by David Packard and it's all like a nonprofit and stuff. And they don't really care about making money. And so they charge like $7 for tickets and like $2 for popcorn and stuff. It's like awesome. Right. Um, they, they had a, they had a Kurosawa festival when I was in high school and I remember seeing just seven samurai just with no context. I think it may have been one of my first like foreign movies I'd ever seen. It was just mm. like, it was just spectacular. Like it, right. it, 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 it took a while to get into the pacing and stuff, but I think I, I, I think I, I sort of think now I have so much appreciation f for like his contemporary stuff just because um, I, I think his samurai movies get so much attention that like I watched this and I watched like we were talking about um, I Ikiru as well, you know, and like mm -hmm. and like I think those movies he handles it so subtly when he goes into sort of a contemporary situation like it gets it, it, it it's not as sort of showy as his, as his um his samurai movies, but, um, they sort of have the same, like the same moral dilemmas and stuff that right, he, sure. he, 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 he confronts in a lot of his samurai movies. I, and, and, and yeah, I've just, I, I've just, I, I've just sort of developed over time, a, an appreciation for his, his contemporary stuff as well. Right. Yeah. There's, you're removing a, a step that we as an American audience have to take, which is we're already watching movies, from another country from another time period 
That's a good, um, that's a good way to know, say it, yeah. But then when you throw in these movies were period pieces when they were written, now we as Americans are watching a Japanese director in the 1960s make a movie about feudal Japan. So it's like one, two, you know, we have to do two more steps. And that's a testament to how good his movies are that Ron and Rashomon and Seven Samurai and Throne of Blood are like still thought of by Americans as some of the best movies ever. Absolutely. But I think like the thing about Akiru was it was it felt like and, and high and low is that they feel like movies that could be made in 2020 Hollywood. You know, you have to change some some things. I think in high and low, the um, the sort of respect everyone has for each other, the the <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, l- that's like, right, <laughs> the fact that the cops are like, we have to do this for Mr. Gondo, and that the yeah. the chauffeur chauffeur is so like is so overwhelmed with guilt by just asking him to to save his son like things like that just don't they they're nice obviously they're better than than our culture but they they wouldn't necessarily translate but other than that the broad strokes of these of kurosawa's contemporary movies are something that feels very familiar to us and he was inspired by american filmmakers obviously he wasn't doing this in a vacuum yeah no that's definitely true yeah in, in my um in my research for like this movie and stuff um I was reading that Scorsese was trying to do a remake of this at one point in like right. the late '90s, and so I kept thinking about his movies and sort of how he's he's sort of obsessed with like the morality of characters or sort of the amorality of characters. If you're thinking about like The Wolf of Wall Street or something, and um, that would have been sort of an interesting idea with all this, like his sort of take on high and low. Like he he's the one like director these days who I could actually see sort of taking this over in some ways, right? Yeah, it was it was going to be Scorsese directing with David Mamet writing it. So oh, David I, Mamet, yeah, yeah. So I just feel like it, a lot of people would have been beating the crap out of each other more than the Curse. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been a little more blood. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But yeah, other definitely. than that, I think I think it is. I, I normally you're like don't remake the classic and that kind of thing, but I do think that because because it is a foreign movie and because it is from a different time period, I do. Like I'm not that interested in seeing a straight remake of High and Low, but yeah. to to sort of translate it, to take the like I said, the broad strokes and translate it to um to what it would what this movie would be in twenty twenty America, I think, sure, why not? Like and and if you have it in the hands of someone like Scorsese, I think then Mike Nichols was gonna take over after Scorsese stepped oh out. My gosh, yeah. And of course it, it's never gonna happen at this point. It's been no, not at this twenty point, years, yeah. you know. But we also just got Parasite, which is basically a near remake of high and low in terms of the <laughs> the themes true. and everything yeah yeah that's true um yeah i i i i do sort of feel like scorsese is like the one person i could really see sort of taking over this idea um but like there's so much sort of class struggle and sort of and sort of um contempt over like the inequality system in america today that that would have been sort of an interesting it would have been sort of an interesting way to see this um see this movie through through sort of a view of 2020 um, right. especially now e- even more than the 90s it would be sort of interesting to see um yeah, yeah and, and then and then given your sort of expertise as a writer and everything i'd love to sort of know your th- thoughts on like the two-part structure i mean this movie is really it's really sort of divided into i mean the high and the low but like th- this sort of morality play that exists in this living room mm-hmm. and then you have this sort of cold procedural after right um and and it's really it's 
it's really two shorter movies that sort of work together. I mean, you have this, you, you, you like have this brief moment in, 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 in the middle where sort of the intensity, um, slows down for a bit and the kids caught and the, the, they, they, they get the kid back and then all of a sudden it sort of ramps back up into this procedural, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I, I, I just think that structure is sort of fascinating. I, I, I can't really think of where else I've seen that. And I'm sort of wondering about your thoughts on that. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting, um, uh, structure for sure. The literal type, the literal translation of this title is heaven and hell. Mm. And I do think it's interesting that you start the movie with this cozy apartment that you almost never leave for an hour. Yeah. Um, You're just, you're in that room. Right. And then when you are down in, in the slums, in just the common areas, even the cops are just sweating. Everybody is hot and sweltering and uncomfortable. And you are seeing this, this dichotomy, you know, this class struggle where even the people trying to help Gondo are not miserable, but they are sort of in this, in this hell like, uh, environment. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really interesting structure. I love the first half. I love that it plays like, like you said, a morality play, like literally a play. I think I heard that Kurosawa actually set up multiple cameras and rehearsed the that opening sequence so that they could yeah. just show up and act and perform and not be like, oh, we're doing this beat and now we're doing this scene. Now we're doing this shot, um, which it's amazing how many beautiful shots Kurosawa gets out of that. Um, and, and it's this thing, we talked about this on our, our podcast with... Um, Spielberg who will shoot one shot that's like this gorgeously composed shot but without ever cutting the camera will just move and now he's shooting this different beautifully composed shot and and Kurosawa did that a lot where you know every there's so many shots that are just beautifully composed like when they're listening to the um the message the first time and there's like nine people in the shot and then at the end when they're putting stickers on uh, everything and the the wife is standing and looking down and the other three people are standing looking down like in the theater i was like look at this shot composition but a lot of times it's not like wes anderson where those shots are sort of pre-set and then the camera doesn't move. You're just watching this one shot or the camera pans like very dramatically from one shot to the next shot. Right. It's this sort of like sneaky cinematography where you're just looking at some characters speaking and then one character walks over and the camera zooms out a little bit. And then suddenly you realize you're in this painting that you had no idea was being composed and the camera hasn't cut once. Um, so that's off topic a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, so I really love the, that whole opening sequence, the first half of the movie where you have Gondo deciding I'm not going to do this. And then you start to see his, his old life seeping in a little bit where he's like, Oh, I, I I used to be, um, I used to be poor and I don't want to do that again. So I'm not going to give up, you know, my company just for, this other person's son. Like, it's so interesting to have it be a kidnapping movie where his son doesn't get kidnapped. So he has right. to make a much harder moral, ch- moral choice than if it's his own kid, where of course he's going to do whatever he's he has to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then by the end for him to, to sort of make the, you know, to actually get the money and, and decide to do this. And then, and then like you said, yeah, the, the second half of the movie, it, it, I mean, it's certainly weird structurally because, the there's a very strong dramatic question in the first half is are they going to get this kid back and then halfway through the movie it's like yep 
So you're like, okay, yeah. what's the and next like, hour so going to be? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed, um, I, I, I noticed early on that when, um, Tatsuya Nakadai comes into the apartment for like the first time and he's sort of explaining like the steps of all this stuff, he says when he's talking about how kidnapping cases usually go, he says, we like to save the child first and then catch the kidnapper. He said mm-hmm. that like early on and I was just like, wow, that's, he just laid out the, the, the structure of the movie basically. <laughs> right. Here's but, what's going to uh, happen. <laughs> yeah. Here's exactly what's going to happen in this movie. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I only noticed on this watch, um, how, how sort of controlled and sort of robotic the camera movements are until you get that first phone call from the kidnapper like it's sort mm-hmm. of it, it, it it's he's got a lot of pans and sort of not not crane movements but sort of slow rises and stuff and then all of a sudden it's it's close up it's a little shaky it's a little jostled and they're all on the phone and it gets a little more confusing the direction you're looking at everything so it it is interesting how subtle he's able to be in sort of a single room. It shows you how sort of and and it feels so. I've I've never really seen a a, a single room feel so cinematic as that room, especially right. in the ultra wide, the the um the is especially in the ultra wide black and white. It just looks so stark in that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think when I saw Hidden Fortress at the theater, they said that was his first uh, widescreen movie. And people yeah. were like, you can't shoot widescreen when there's action. And he's like, y- <laughs> yes, you can. Just watch. Just, it'll be fine. And of course, now, 50 years later, people are like, uh, yeah, that's, that works just yeah. fine. Um, that's funny. But uh, but yeah, the second half of the movie is interesting because it sort of becomes the, the Tetsuya Nakadai's character's like show and then you are like you said procedural where it's like oh we have this fact and this thing and then this other thing and then now we have to do this and so yeah it does become a little i I certainly don't want to say boring because this movie is not boring but it does become just a lot more slow paced where you're sort of building on things happening um and then but then it's really satisfying to see how everything then finally comes together with the um the couple you know, obviously the, the heroin addicts and then how every little piece you, you've got the, the murder board, you know, there's, there's three phone booths. This one doesn't get any sun. I love but these that. Two do. Yeah. And like all that stuff. And so it's like, it is really satisfying, probably more satisfying than, than an episode of CSI or whatever, where you've spent so long. First of all, you've gone on the first hour emotional journey with these characters to be really invested in catching the, the kidnapper because Otherwise, you're like, we're just trying to catch some guy. Like, who cares? Which is what a lot of those CSIs are. It's like... Yeah, the first we, th- th- 30 minutes of a CSI episode is the first hour of this, basically. Right. Um, but a lot of times, it's like, we don't know who this victim was. We don't know who this killer is. We're just the cops trying to catch them or whatever. This is... No, we are very invested in who these characters are. We're very invested in, in catching this guy. Uh, so then, yeah, towards... Then in the sort of fourth movement of the movie, like you see all these things come together where every little clue you've been given, you're now seeing finally pay off. Um, and then... And it's so interesting that that Gondo becomes this minor character in the movie where you just get a glimpse of him mowing the lawn, like doing his his old blue collar stuff that he used to do back in the day before. Yeah, and he, he... stops wearing suits too. I only noticed uh-huh. that on this watch. He's just wearing t shirts and well, right. well sort of co- simple collared shirts, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but then, you know, it, it's 
it's one of those movies I just feel like it's a ride where you have to you're going on all it's not just like I'm going to I'm going to watch High and Low again tomorrow like I I could watch that any day of the week it's like no I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go on this very intricate ride and then of course it pays off in this final scene where now you have these two characters speaking to each other and there's so much beautiful work done in this movie to to show this mirror uh mirroring between them like literally in the last scene you can see each other's reflections in each of their shot um but just as early on as you can't tell the kids apart you know you oh you uh, jun and uh shinchi like you can't tell them apart and that's obviously there for the mechanics of of the kidnapper getting the wrong kid but it's also very thematically relevant where you do have these sort of two I'm not going to call the kidnapper the the secondary protagonist of the movie, but you have these sort of these two main characters of the movie who have who live in sort of opposite sides of this mirror universe almost, and they they have their reasons for uh, for not wanting to be the other. You know, the the kidnapper is looking up at this right. house and yeah. being like, "I hate you," but then Gondo is. I love at the end he says, "Why should we have to hate each other?" But in the beginning, you do have this feeling of I've been poor. I don't want to go back to that. You know, he says like I could go back to that to his wife. You couldn't, but he clearly doesn't want to. He clearly is like, no, no, right. no. I've I've done that part of my life. I don't need to do it again. Um, so he almost. I don't want. I certainly don't want to say he has contempt for, um, for poor people or something. But you do get the same sort of theme you get in Parasite, which is like once the Kim family gets into the park residence they don't want to help out the people in the basement because they're like no 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 we we made it to the we leveled up we don't we don't want to go back down again we don't want to like we condescend to you now who are where we just were a week ago and i think you do get that sense of gondo um in his little thing about saying i came from poverty and i don't want to go back is that feeling of i i've transcended beyond that now which is why it's it's beautiful to to see him go on that journey that he goes on to sort of go back to back to his roots you know yeah definitely i think yeah it's a it's um it's really interesting to compare this with parasite especially i I think the one i I think the one key distinction that i'd make from parasite is just like parasite um pong jung ho makes a big point of like there is no real upward mobility in society you know he makes a big point of that Mm. and like in this what's sort of I think I think I think the sort of secondary tragedy of the story is that the kidnapper was trying to become a doctor. Like he was clearly a smart guy, and had he sort of stuck with it, had he sort of stuck with it for longer and everything, you can sort of assume that he would have ended up pretty wealthy. He may he he, he might not have ended up as wealthy as the owner of a shoe company, but he mm-hmm. would have ended up pretty well off. And and he was just sort of he, he he was just sort of overcome by this like anger and hatred and envy that he just didn't really see it through to that point. But um, yeah, I, I've I, I I I sort of found that especially tragic on this watch. And then also, um, it's um it's very anti med school movie. My girlfriend's applying to med schools right now, uh-huh. and, uh, and and she was like, yeah, this movie does not want to make me, does not want to make you go through that. It's just, poor. 
horror student in the slums for years until you finally make it through all that. So right, right. But you know. <laughs> Yeah, but I think the, the interesting comparison with Parasite is that we, is, I mean, and Bong Joon-ho has said High and Low was a huge inspiration for Parasite. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, you have, I think in our culture, what we're used to is maybe more of like the upstairs, downstairs dramas of like the Downton Abbey's or Gosford Park or something Gosford where it's Park, like, yeah. yeah, people like literally in the same house, but living such different lives because here are the wealthy people and here are the poor people. And I say, you know, the servants, I say poor people. I don't mean that, but like, um, yeah. but you know what I mean? The relatively um, uh, less well-to-do people. And, and of course what kind of drama that brings up and what kind of envy and all that kind of stuff it brings up. And then what parasite, and obviously there is a literal upstairs and downstairs. You have the high and the low there. And then that's what parasite did so beautifully and high and low does beautifully is this physical thing. Like the house is up on a hill, both in parasite and high and low. Yeah. And the people, the poor people live down, down this hill. You have to descend to go to where they are. Um, and, uh, and then parasite introduces this sort of middle level, which I would say is kind of the chauffeur in high and low that he is like, yeah, you know what I mean? He's sort of like, well, I am here, but I'm not here. Like I, I've made it to this part yeah. stage of life, but I am not Gondo obviously. Um, so I think that that's, that's just an interesting, like it's a very clear, just the theme of class struggle and, not worrying about your own life, but worrying, like you said, like he's could be a doctor. Like, why does, why does he care what somebody else has? Um, but that's such an obvious, any, any of us have done that from either end where we realize how, how much better somebody else has it, but we also realize how much better we have it than somebody else. But then to take that to the next level in both of these movies and physically set these things in a sort of up and down kind of way so that you are, he is literally looking up at this air conditioned house from his hot, you know, apartment and stuff just really, really makes that theme come alive rather than just be something that people are talking about or thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what's so interesting is after, um, Gondo lets go of the money, he, he's, he, 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 he's sort of a more well-rounded character. He's sort of, he sort of feels at peace with himself. He sort of feels mm-hmm. at peace with his morality and he's sort of he's um he's he's hot and the air conditioning isn't working anymore and everything mm-hmm. but he's sort of he's hoeing the lawn and he's he 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 doesn't seem as consumed with with um with um like like he 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 just seems more at peace than he was which mm-hmm. i think is sort of an interesting he's sort of in a better place after he makes the right choice and he might or might not get the money back, but he doesn't seem as consumed with it as when he's actually trying to decide whether or not to give it away in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, like, I also wanted to ask you, um, um, I've seen this three times this year, actually. Like, mm. I watched it once on my own and then once with, with my girlfriend and then I watched it with my dad this time. Um, and it's so great to watch it with someone that hasn't seen it before. Right. There's so many twists and turns. How was it watching with, how, how was it watching it with your girlfriend this time was she kind of shocked by it all or like what were her yeah i don't know about shocked but she was definitely riveted she was trying to put the pieces together she thought the um the board of directors had something to do with it she thought they. my dad my dad was saying the same thing yeah um yeah it's interesting because it's it is one of those movies that becomes uh i don't want to say less interesting but like any movie that has a lot of twists and turns those are only really those only really work the first viewing 
because they're there for the audience who doesn't know what's coming next. Um, that doesn't mean those movies can't be enjoyable when you watch them for the 20th time, obviously. But, um, but yeah, so for me watching it for the second time, I was like, okay, I know what's coming and okay, we're, we have there's that scene coming but we have to get here and here and here to get i'm like thinking of the machinations of how we get from point a to point b and that kind of thing um but still appreciating the little tidbits that were left along the way there would be little pieces where i'm like oh what does that have to do with anything and then 20 minutes later i'm like right because then that happens you know um yeah, but yeah, yeah exactly exactly but it was cool watching it with somebody who hadn't seen it who was um and she's she's better than i am at piecing together things like the thing uh black mirror w- every time we watch a black mirror episode like 20 minutes in she's like oh right because they're closed on christmas and that's it so no one's going to be there tomorrow i'm like what? oh you remember that one random line that someone said 20 minutes ago <laughs> yeah i'm horrible with that stuff. right <laughs> so so she is very um she i mean first of all she's just she just loves kurosawa's visual art you know so she's just like picking apart all this stuff like look rule of thirds like look at this you know um but yeah in terms of the actual plot uh it was cool just to because she's very engaged and and watching her watching her sort of gears work to try to put piece all the things together was pretty neat yeah for sure for sure um so yeah i i i, I usually do like a draft of our favorite scenes with the guests mm-hmm. so as the guest, you're welcome to go first. So um, we're each going to pick three scenes that we want to talk about. We can't overlap, uh, but you get the first pick. So if there's any if there's any specific scene you want to you want to take, go for it. Sure. Um, it's it's not even a scene as much as it's a moment. Um, yeah. But it's something that I don't I don't know if I would have thought of if it wasn't for Craig, the guy who um, runs Secret Movie Club, who I saw this movie with the first time. He pointed it out to the audience after the movie, which is the moment where Gondo realizes they need to figure out what to do with the case to put the, the smoke pellets inside. He says, go get my toolkit. And he just sits down on the floor. Yeah, I and, love that. And you know, he rolls up his sleeves and he just starts working on it. And that is the first moment where you are starting to see. Uh, later, very late in the movie, he says, I'm still the man I've always been. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that he is maybe trying to convince himself of in this movie. Um, definitely, definitely. But, uh, but I think that's the moment where you as the audience see that he is not, he's not showing off for anybody. He's not saying, I'm going to show them that I'm still this guy. Like he is just, Oh, we need to do something with a case. Cool. Get my toolkit. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And he just, and the fact that he sits down on the floor is just, it's just this beautiful moment that you, you don't see coming at all because the cops are like, Oh, there's pink smoke. Da da da. Um, it just, it feels like this like plot setup moment, which obviously it is, but then to like infuse it with this really touching character moment that just shows you, okay, this, this is the guy we want him to be. This isn't the guy who, you know, and you get that, um, in the, in the opening scene too, where they say, Oh, if we make shoes like this, we'll make more money. And he's like, yeah, but the shoes aren't good. We need to like, you see his dignity, you you see his pride. Right. Um, he says that, that, we need to actually the first and foremost, we have to care about what we're doing. If we can make money out of that, that's great. But the important thing is that we have pride in our work and we have that dignity. And I think that like just that one little moment shows that so well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I think, and, 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 and and like, I think that's sort of the turning point you see between like it, it's sort of the most subtle performance I've seen of his, like in his, in his, in his, um, his samurai movies and stuff usually have pretty physical characteristics and he's sort of leaning all over the place and he's yelling and like he's he's so he's so kind of 
subtle and sort of um, subdued in this one that like I think it's I I I, I and, and I think and, and I think that's sort of the turning point from he's this he's this businessman that's concerned about profits to him sort of returning to his roots like you were saying mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah no I I. I, I wasn't really focused on that moment at the time, but that's a really that's a really good point. I think um, I, I I think the scene I'd take second for me would be the train scene. Mm. Um, I I think there's so much happening there. You, you sort of feel like you're coming to this culmination of you don't you don't quite know if the killer is on the train. You don't quite sure. know how it's going to all play out and if they're going to cut away with the money if they're going to catch the guy and what's going to happen and and, and I think they're, they're and like I think this and, and, and like I think the hope with having the cops on the train is that they're going to somehow find a way to apprehend the guy on the train but obviously halfway through that scene you figure out he's going to have to throw the money through the window in the bathroom mm-hmm. and there's going to be there, 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 there's going to be an easy escape for these guys and then they're going to hand back the kid and it's going to be an easy transition and and, and and it's going to be an easy transaction and i think that that there, I, I i i think that's the most intense scene of the movie um and it's just beautifully shot i i, I was reading online that they shot it mostly live like they shot it with mm-hmm. they, they they shot it on a moving train with real extras in the train which mm-hmm. i thought was just awesome but uh it does it does have that sort of live feel to it which i don't know yeah very yeah, yeah. no it's it's a really cool scene and it's it's really it's like this constant race of the cops and the kidnapper being one step ahead of each other right so it's like the kidnapper's like oh yeah you're gonna have to throw it through this window and you know these people here are not me they're just my you know my lackeys but then also they're like but we are filming from all sides so we can take pictures and we can realize there's a guy walking a cow in a background that we can go talk to and then find skid marks and um and it's just it's fun it's fun to watch anybody like be detectives in a movie and like see what little things they they piece together and everything um so that train sequence is cool because it it happens so quickly um but then but then the rest of the movie is sort of based on what they were able to to piece together from it yeah, like, and I think so often in this movie, you have, like, key moments, and then either through, like, a tape recorder, a camera or something, you sort of relive those moments. Like, mm-hmm. um, like, like, so many of the phone calls that we hear are the tape phone calls, and you see the, the cops listening to the phone call. I think the second phone call that he's on the phone with the, um, I, I, I think the second phone call that he's on the phone with the kidnapper, you only hear that through the tape recorder. You don't actually see that originally at the time. It's sort of interesting because, like, I think it probably would have been slightly more intense had he ha- had he played that as it was actually happening. But mm-hmm. it sort of allows you to it, it, it sort of allows you as the audience to get more analytical with it all. Right. If if you're sort of seeing it for, for like the second time, and you can like relive these key moments and try to sort of piece it together yourself. Yeah, but. definitely. Um, I also think that some of those moments allow for. I, I just the Kurosawa wide shot, you know, where it's oh, yeah. it's just like one person or two people are listening back to a message and like l- listening for like a um a, a siren or whatever they're they're listening for. But then meanwhile, two other people are just sitting and hanging out and then one guy in the background is sifting through some files and then Gondo is in the back in silhouette and it's just like 
I, I'm like, why? The chauffeur's in the corner. Right, yeah. Like, always, they're always on two sides of the frame, Gondo and the chauffeur, yeah. you know? Like, um, and, uh, and I just, I love that. And it just makes me, it, like, I'm constantly annoyed at how much we cut in movies. Not necessarily these days, as much as over the past, few, like, the kind of 80s, 90s, early aughts. Where it was just, we need to cut to this person for the reaction, and then we need to cut to somebody else because, like, somebody's walking by and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, you can do so much in a single frame, and it's and it pays off more, I think, when you do it in a single frame. It makes it feel more immersive. It makes me feel like I'm in the movie and not like if I want to know that somebody how somebody feels about what somebody else just said, I can just look at them. I don't need the camera to change to a close up of them to see them go roll their eyes. And then we cut back to the wide shot. It's like, I can just look at that character to see what their reaction yeah, you can was. See it you all know? in the shot. Yeah. And this yeah. is a, a great example of how much, um, yeah, I mean, there's a theatricality to Kurosawa's movies where, like, someone Definitely. will say something and everybody in the shot goes, like, <gasps> and, like, will, like, lean forward or stand up or something. And that's, that's obviously more than realistic but it it still allows for so much to be done in in wide shots yeah definitely and i was sort of thinking like in a lesser movie like in if, if this was if this was remade in the 90s like tatsuya would pro like like um tatsuya nakadai the detective would probably have like a wife that was constantly calling him saying uh -huh. why are you obsessed with work like why aren't you getting home to me and your kids and whatever and he doesn't really have a backstory or anything, but that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't take away from his character at all, which I think right. is also interesting. Um, um, so what would be your next favorite scene that you'd want to that you'd want to pick? I think this? I don't even know if this is favorite as much as I just really like it yeah. um, in terms of the the second half of the movie, which is just the whole sequence of them tracking the kidnapper, where you oh, have yeah. all of these cops and they're in like character, they're in costumes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they're like, oh, we need someone to go in a flower shop. Well, none of us fits the part, so we can't go to a flower shop because we're all just like this. And then you have the guys dressed in their Hawaiian shirts going into the jazz club and dancing. And then you have uh, the... Going down Dope Alley. Right. And then you have the like the, the Dope Alley guys yeah. who are doing their, um, their sort of like dope fiend body language and then as soon as the kidnapper walks around the corner then they run and they listen and then they have to turn the corner now so they go back into like zombie mode um and then there's a beautiful shot where the three of them are just kind of sitting in zombie mode and then the killer opens the window in the background like when he i first love takes. that shot that yeah. shot is so gorgeous um so yeah i don't know i just i really like um i really like when movies can show me the sort of macro tactics that are happening like weirdly I, uh, avengers the first avengers uh, battle new york is kind of a cool example of this where it's like oh they can't bank so like take a sharp left up here and like okay cool i'll be at the end of this street so bring them my way and like there's not a lot of it but there's just enough where i'm like even if i'm not seeing this huge overarching shot of the city i have an understanding of where things are where people are and where things are happening and i think this movie That's a really does really good point yeah this movie does this with the murder board and stuff where you're like tracking everything but then when you actually get into the sequence where they're tracking him you do have the sort of the, the detective is not there. He's in the car, but then everybody else is tracking him. They're trying to figure out why is he going into this room? And now he's going into this place. We have to go through this jazz place to get to him. And it's just, it's nice whenever I feel like I am 
not disoriented. We're not, why are we in this place? Why are we in this place? It's just like, I am actually tracking in sort of real time, this, this traveling and why people are going from point A to point B and stuff. It just feels a lot more, um, like I said, theatrical, like I'm watching a play instead of just watching a movie where you can just kind of cut to wherever, whenever, and you don't have to care if the audience is following along of how you got from point A to point B, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. And whoever, whoever decided to give him those sunglasses, that was just like an awesome choice Mm -hmm. to have those like sunglasses where you can constantly see what he's seeing. Like, especially in the close-ups, you can see his, his viewpoint and everything that, that was just an awesome choice as well. Um, it's cool to see how much this movie has inspired modern movies because you have a big one like Parasite, but then right. you have Elijah Wood's glasses in Sin City, which are oh. absolutely oh, based on... Oh, I never on, thought of that. Yeah. Damn, yeah. And then uh, apparently Tarantino took the uh, the Pulp Fiction swing dance scene from the jazz scene. Like, apparently they're doing like some of the same moves and that kind of oh, thing. Oh, which... all the kind of like back of... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah for sure, for um, sure. So it's just cool to see that like some of these big filmmakers are like, no, no, this is the movie that we... That inspires us. I think, I think, I think my next favorite scene would be the scene in the end where he's face to face. He, 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 he's finally face to face with the killer and that whole, and, and, and like the whole sequence where you can see the reflection of either one in the mirror, mm-hmm. um, from either side. I just think that's so beautifully directed and the killer is pr- pretending not to be afraid. And then all of a sudden that barrier comes down between the two of them and then it's just him it's it's just it's just him and his reflection and it's a fade to black and yeah that whole sequence is just is just spectacular and 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 and, 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 and like it's the second time they meet but it's finally like the time you feel like you're getting some closure on on on, on, on like the whole situation right yeah well you stole my third scene um <laughs> <laughs> but no yeah I, I think it is um i you know watching it with my girlfriend she right as like Tashira Mafuni is going to into the into the jail. She's like, but why? Why did any of this happen? And I think, at, in sort of twenty twenty America, we are expecting the like. She she's joked that when he comes face to face with him, he's gonna be like, Dad, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I you left me when I was you know this age, and that's why I never forgave you, and that's why I did all that, you know, like there was gonna be some like silly thing like that. Not that she was seriously thinking that but there is this sort of feeling of what is the you know what is the reasoning for this um and yeah i think what what's great about that scene too is that first of all it just it ties these two halves of the movie together like without that scene it just feels like what was the whole point of half of the movie right if the other half of the movie is like only tied together by a string um but also the fact that you get his monologue, you know, where he says, I've had to sit there and watch you. And and Gondo's never met this guy. It's almost, no, not almost. It is more powerful that he doesn't know him. He's not, he wasn't some employee right. who was working at the place. And that that is the, the trope. The trope is, you fired me. And because you fired me, I had to, my girlfriend broke up with me and I couldn't afford to do this. And I've been stewing about it for 10 years and da, da, da. It's just... I don't like my life and your life is better. And that's why I did everything I did. And it's like, that's so depressing. But like I said, it's, it's, it is more powerful that way. Yeah. 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 It definitely is more powerful. Um, and his performance is just spectacular in this. I think I really appreciated it on this watch. And I also, 
I didn't realize until today that he's the same guy in Tampopo. I don't know if you've seen Tampopo, but he's he, he's mm. the um. So that's a movie from the eighties that uh, it's it it's sort of about ramen, but like it's about sort of people's love for food and stuff, and it's also kind of a take on a western. <laughs> but, oh, I've so heard this, of this. My friend, yeah. <laughs> my friend who who is um, part Japanese, he told me about this movie, and he's like, "You have to see it." Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> for sure um do you want to talk about your next favorite scene then no you stole my third one <laughs> we can just move on now <laughs> i do want to mention though while we're talking about him the um uh i i do like the casting of him that he's not a villainous f- actor or face you know what i mean you could have easily cast right. someone who um who is just like, oh, that's the bad guy. And I think the first time I saw the movie, I was like, oh, is this one of the cops who's like investigating the apartment? I was like, oh, no, it's not. This is the guy. Um, but uh, but so much of the casting in this movie is so good where you have like Bosun. I love the Bosun. He's just like my favorite Bosun's character. Great. Yeah. Um, and uh, but like uh, Aoki, the chauffeur, the fact that he is so such a sympathetic face, you know, that he is just like a, little ball of emotion basically is that you are so immediately like feeling for him. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and even just some of like the random, like the guy, the guy who tells them about the, the trains and like, Oh, that sound comes from this train. You don't get that sound from these trains. That guy like, killed me. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was like, so I just love, awesome. it's like a Coen brothers thing where you have characters who only have one or two lines, but they just, you, they're unforgettable you know um and the guy Definitely. who burns the trash like there's just so much good casting in this movie where you're like that guy feels like who that guy should be um but i think that because so many so many of those roles are cast so well and sort of so specifically um the fact that the fact that the kidnapper is cast is just a regular dude uh, I think is really smart casting because it doesn't it it doesn't make you go well of course he's the he's a psychopath of course he's the bad guy it's like he just feels like yeah that could be a med student that lives next door to me I I I love how subtle that moment is when he's deciding to pay like I I, mm. I just love how how he just sort of calls up the bank and you're sort of seeing it through the cop's perspective of just like he's just like yeah I'll have these notes and these notes and these notes and, and you you have 30 minutes of sort of building up to that point mm-hmm. and then and then that scene's sort of so so underplayed I think that's such a beautiful moment in this whole thing yeah yeah and it, and it's shot like it takes place in the background like he is yeah. the background character in that um, there's a moment with the wife too where I forget what she's doing but she is like the sixth focus character in the shot but she is the character who is doing the important thing and uh, i just think those are always fascinating shots because it makes you it makes you lean forward and um and focus on what's going on but also you get to see what's in the foreground is people's reactions to the important thing which is the thing that's happening in the background and i think that's a really nice balance of stuff um i thought of another scene which is uh just going to to find the the junkies in the house with the kid in the back of the car, the chauffeur's car, and then the, and then the bosun and the other cop going. Oh right, yeah. I don't I don't know why, but like, because like that scene only leads to them finding the house, which is obviously very important. Um, but 
even watching it a second time, knowing that like all that was going to happen was they were going to find these things. There's just this really nice tension in that scene where it's like you have, it's like the shots are very close up and you don't know what's going on. And the cops don't realize they're right around the corner from the chauffeur. And then they finally find each other. And then the kid disappears and you're like, Oh my God, did the kid get kidnapped a second time? You know? Right. Um, right. And I just think it's really cool. Um, it's not once upon a time in Hollywood where Brad Pitt goes to the ranch and there's 20 minutes of tension t- leading up to nothing. And yeah. it's completely pointless because it doesn't move the narrative forward in any way. Uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it moves the narrative <laughs> yep. forward. Um, and, but it's like tense and interesting and just, it just feels like sort of a breath of fresh air literally because we're like inside with these sweltering cops so much of the time that we're now outside driving around and stuff. Um, but yeah, that sequence just for some reason, even though there's nothing like super special about it, it's just one that I remembered. Like I was like ready, excited for that sequence to happen the second time, remembering it from the first time. And it still, it still just feels there's like a, there's like an energy to it that I really appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about the same thing on this watch, just this idea that like you, 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 you like sort of have these um, two cars approaching uh, from opposite ends and, and you, you do sort of see where it's going, but um do you have any thoughts on why that's so intense? Is it just the idea that they might heat up or something? The idea that you're seeing two storylines converge? Yeah. I, mean, I think I think it is a little bit that when I say we as the audience, I mean even we who've seen the movie before. Right. We right. as the audience don't know what's happening, you know? And, and again, it's like we do if we've seen the movie before, but it's it's presented to us in a way where it just feels a little disorienting. Like I said, the cameras just mm-hmm. feel a little too close on everybody and and the the cuts going back and forth. Like there's not a lot of cross-cutting in in this movie in any Kurosawa movie. Like I mean, I guess like Seven Samurai obviously you're constantly cross-cutting, but um but like a lot of Kurosawa is we're on these two characters or these three characters for the next 5 minutes and we're not cutting away. And yeah, this is like close-up shots on two different cars and they're sort of just away just apart from each other and uh and we're like following the kid and like him remembering stuff and yeah it's i think it has more to do with the filmmaking than the writing where it just feels you know think about how much of this movie we spent in an apartment in wide shots in long scenes and now we're like cross-cutting and close up and stuff i think it's just sort of because we understand film language we are, we are, our bodies are in a place of this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel familiar. Like something is going to go wrong here. Um, and, and I, and I do appreciate that. I think that like, I don't feel cheated. Like I said, once upon a time, Hollywood is an example of a movie that takes too long to do nothing, but I don't feel cheated when a movie makes me feel tense, but then there's no payoff because I think that that's a good tool in a filmmaker's toolbox um they just have to do it wisely you know and i I think that like um that sequence is a good example of nothing crazy happens at the end of the sequence but it took me for like an exciting little like i got a little adrenaline kick (laughs) watching it um because it just felt a little disorienting in a way that that a lot of the movie doesn't yeah, yeah, and, and then I think you're sort of you're, you're still sort of um, stuck in this mindset of oh, this is a single room drama, and and you're trying to mm-hmm. come out of that, and, um, and 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 
and so like you said, I think any shot of the outside feels so refreshing in comparison to the sort of, it, it's a large living room, but it feels so cramped in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what is it about once a time? So, so what is it about once upon a time in Hollywood where you feel sort of cheated by that as opposed to this, if they're both, if they're both sort of building up to nothing, like, like, well, what would you say the difference it's, is? This high and low is not, this sequence is not building up to nothing. It's building up right. to, they get the next clue they need to solve the crime, you know? So yeah. it does pay off at the end. It just feels like it's building up to something other than what we get. So that's a, that's a fun little ride, you know? Um, yeah, that makes sense. Once upon a time in Hollywood, I feel like there's a lot of scenes in this movie, but especially the Brad, the Brad Pitt going to the ranch scene, which take way too long and don't actually forward the narrative. Like you're thinking, okay, he drives away in the car. So Tex or somebody is going to see the license plate. They're going to somehow figure out, trace the car. That's how they end up back at the back at, you know, Cielo drive. Um, and instead, no, it's like, he doesn't even remember him at the end till, till Brad Pitt's like, Hey, you're the guy from the ranch. He's like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well I was going to kill you anyway. Now I'm just going to kill you more. Like, yeah. um, so it just, it just, there's, like I love tension and I think that Inglorious Bastards, the opening sequence of Inglorious Bastards is a great example of a lot of tension and then some payoff. And there are other sequences in Inglorious Bastards that are like a lot of tension or like, I think um, hateful eight's a good example of like a lot of tension. And then there is payoff. Like someone kills somebody else, but it's so quick and dirty and like, it's just over in a second that it doesn't, it's like, did we need a 10 minute long argument of like people like uh, side-eyeing each other and like you know <laughs> yeah. threatening each other There's a lot, to, a lot to of that hateful it right to get to this one like literally five seconds of of screen violence and then it's over you know um and i think once upon a time in hollywood is 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 just sort of the most guilty of tarantino being like look how good i am with tension i don't have to pay it off i just i'm just going to put you on the edge of your seat for 10 minutes and then just go back to the movie as normal and it's like well screw you like that's not what, that's not what i'm here for like you don't yeah, yeah, you don't yeah, get sure. to do the one thing without the other thing are you a breaking bad fan yeah yeah definitely definitely okay. definitely the, it's uh, been a while ep- but i love that yeah i, I won't spoil anything for anyone who hasn't seen it but the uh box cutter episode which is where mm, i forgot about know, that one yeah right that is 45 minutes of straight tension and then it pays off <laughs> like because i remember watching that being like i really hope this goes somewhere and then at the end i was like holy crap and i think that <laughs> that's like that show is a good example of i i think basically tension let me put it this way tension is a promise like you are promising your audience that something is going to result. like we are going to make you uneasy for a while and then something is going to happen um and i think there are ways you can do that. There are ways you can cheat that. There are ways, like I said, with with high and low, it's we're going to bring you this tension. We're not going to give you quite what you thought, but we're still going to move the narrative forward. We're still going to have this like kind of gruesome scene that's really fascinating. And now you learn this new thing about the killer and it's really cool and stuff. Um, but I think when you use tension simply to put someone on the edge of your seat for no reason and you're not actually moving the narrative forward and you're not actually paying off that tension, then it just feels like, like you're cheating your audience and you're not, you're not giving them what you promised them. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think that's really well put. And um, yeah, I, I, I could definitely see on this movie, you definitely, you definitely get like a lot of 
payoffs like along the way, specifically two large payoffs. Um, I feel like I'm probably keeping you a little long here. Is is there anything else you want to touch on with the movie here? Or uh, I don't think so. I, I made a, I made several notes, and I think we we hit on everything. It was a yeah. nice little nice little round the bases of yeah, what's definitely. so cool about this movie. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, um, I, I like to have my guests um, close the show with um, Pi saying a line. Uh, um, Pi saying a line from a movie that they love in character. So. Oh wow. All right, I'm going to do this, but I need you to say no, not on me, man. All right? After okay. my first line. Say, man, you got a joint? No, not on me, man. It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> that was a decent McConaughey. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts and everything. That Thanks was, for having uh, me, man. That was a great episode. So, yeah, thank you so much. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Cineflag, and I will see you next week.